Hello guys and welcome again. Today I have announcements to make. So 12th of February was a really big day for me. I launched my website and tied up with two companies. Subsarans, who provides wide range of supplements, would also provide you 15% off with my code FITFACT. I will also provide these details on my Instagram bio. So if you are in Melbourne, Australia, you can also get infrared sauna, ice baths or oxygen therapy with 50% code again. The code will also be on my Instagram account. The code is FITFACT15. So if you're in Melbourne, you can choose that. With the Subsaras, you can order online and they ships all over Australia. Unfortunately, for outside of Australia, I don't have anything yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> so it will be soon. These companies also listed on my website as well. The website also have links to these companies, which is Subsaras and Regen Wellness Center. If you go to my website, scroll all the way down, you'll see these two companies you can just click on it and you're on your way to book your appointment or order anything you want to order online i wish you guys all the best ordering all these things and thank you for all your support so far and in the future Welcome to the Fit Fact King podcast, where we share the experiences of athletes, personal trainers, and health coaches. We talk about their struggles, mindset, habits, motivation, and most importantly, why they started. If you're looking to optimize your health, then this is the podcast for you. In a world of misinformation, get the facts about getting fit with your host, Amar Graywald. Hello and welcome to the brand new episode of the Fit Fact King. Guys, today's guest is an outstanding guest. I met with him a long time ago in some of the convocation I went to Queensland. I knew straight away that I have to get him one point to the podcast because of the speciality, because of the, his line of work and everything. Someone who has a lot of knowledge and expertise to who can bring a lot of lightning to our discussion please join dr warwick bishop he's a cardiologist he's the best cardiologist one of the best cardiologists in australia he's highly regarded in the field with an extensive background with this cardiovascular medicine and their insight and research have played a pivotal role in advancing our understanding of heart health we will be discussing about today's technology advancement in cardiac imaging te techniques to shedding light on emerging, um, emerging therapies about heart diseases. He's not only just a cardiologist also, he's got like that much knowledge that he's written books about to like for about good heart, how to maintain your good health of the heart and then how to avoid heart attacks and all that you should definitely visit his website to understand and then there is also a test on the website that you can do it remotely just by paying $300 and then it will give you sort of scan of your heart to tell you how great your heart is if you have any heart problems in your family in heart problems you must listen to this episode or friends and family who can benefit from this episode please share with them let's not just waste time Let's welcome Dr. Warwick Bishop. It's a pleasure, Amir. I'm glad to have you here and then talk about your experiences, your journey as a cardiologist. Hopefully, this will help the audience to understand more about the heart health. Well, look, it's an absolute pleasure for me to be speaking about heart health. As you probably know, because we've 
known each other for a little while now. Yeah. One of my real focuses is in preventative cardiology. Now, most people don't think about going and seeing uh, a doctor while they're well. Yeah. Uh, and I would really like to change that landscape. I believe waiting until we're sick to mm. see the doctor is a little bit too late. It, it really is tow truck sort of medicine when we could be providing maintenance. And the analogy I use constantly, Amar, is if we've got a car and we want to look after it, we go and get it serviced while it is still running well. We get the oil, the water, the brakes, the timing all checked just to make sure we don't have a breakdown. Well, I think our hearts are exactly the same. So I'm I'm always... I actually uh, use the same example to others too. <laughs> perfect. perfect. So I'm always uh, grateful and passionate about the opportunity to really try and shift uh, the needle on that and to get people being proactive. Yeah. I just want to talk about like what motivated you to become a cardiologist? Like, you know, it must have, do you have anyone known that had some, some hard problems or it's just like you wanted to do it from the beginning? Look, it's a little bit of a shaggy dog story. I, um, I ended up in medicine because I had the chance as a young uh, fellow in late high school to do work experience with an engineering company. Yeah. I thought I'd end up being an engineer because I was good at sciences and maths. And unbeknownst to me, I did two weeks with a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. It was all drains and retaining walls. As a young teenager, I thought, oh, I don't think I want to do this for the rest <laughs> of my life. Yeah. And uh, then I pivoted and looked at what other subjects I could get into. Uh, law, I'm a bit dyslexic, so I didn't think I uh, cope mm. very well with writing essays. So I, I dropped into medicine, uh, really found the stuff, all the learning so interesting. I'd never thought I'd be a doctor, but I found that interesting. I got through medicine. I got into physician training, which is specialist training. And as I went through different areas of specialist training, um, I've decided whether it was for me or not. So I was very excited about hematology early on. But it turned out that because I'm colorblind, I couldn't see the slides for hematology to look at the different stains they use to identify particular conditions. So I couldn't even, as much as I found hematology interesting, my uh, colorblindness stopped me doing it. I is it really is really affect you? Um, It doesn't affect. Yeah, it doesn't affect me on a day to day basis. For example, I I I can see I'm wearing an orange t shirt. For example, I can Mm. see. The blue sky, but when colours are close, uh, think of a cricket ball uh, coming at you uh, across a green, yep. uh, grassy paddock, uh, <clears throat> separating some colours out. Seeing apples in trees, seeing a um, an eosinophilic stain uh, with uh, polymorph uh, degranulization and pink associated with that. I, I just had troubles with those very close things. So. Mm. So I couldn't do hematology. Um, I worked through gastroenterology, couldn't bring myself to seriously ask people about their bowel habits on a regular basis, wasn't my thing. Yeah. Uh, respiratory, uh, too much lung cancer, I found that depressing. And one thing led to another, and I, I dropped into cardiology. There was no problem with being colorblind. And at the time I dropped into it, Amar, there was an absolute a uh, groundswell of excitement because we were just starting to use these drugs, these clot-busting drugs to fix mm. up 
uh, people who are having an acute heart attack. And this is yeah. so exciting. Um, we we're also using drugs to help people who had cardiac failure. So there was a couple of things that really made this quite exciting. And it also gave us the chance to really help people and make a difference. And I really got more drawn to that and excited about that. And uh, here I am still. Uh, and in fact, I've pivoted in the last decade or so. I've moved away from wanting to fix people up, yeah, uh, which was the exciting bit that got me into it, into um, trying to stop people getting sick in the first place. So uh, what excites me these days is absolutely nothing happening to people. <laughs> so so I've, I've, I've done a, a very circuitous route to get where I am at the moment. That's good. Um, so when, when you were doing, like choosing medicine, did you have any family pressure or um, like who was supporting you or? Look, I, I had, I was very, I'm very grateful to my parents. They were uh, of very um, humble means. And my dad said to me quite, quite reasonably early on, he said, well, we can support you going to uni if you do a, a, um, a degree that's got a job at the end. You, yeah. We can't afford to let you go to uni and find yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but he was really, he said that, you know, basically said that the family would make a commitment to support me if I made a commitment to, you know, apply myself. And and that's why I talked about engineering, um, law, um, yeah. and medicine. So I, I picked medicine and, and to be honest, I haven't looked back. Mm -hmm. So can you explain like most common heart condition or disease that can uh, impact overall fitness of the person or the fitness levels? So we need to think of people a little bit in age groups to yes. ask. Yeah. So let's say I'm over 30 or over 40. Just So th thankfully, Amar, most patients over 30 or 40 don't run into too much trouble in terms of their heart. The ones that I would be most concerned about are people at 30 or 40 with very high cholesterol levels and very bad family histories because those people could be brewing a problem mm. that they're unaware of. They could be going to the gym and feel fit and well, but cholesterol can still build up in the arteries even if you look fit and well on the outside. Yeah. So those 30, 40-year-olds are a great opportunity for a conversation around potential preventative strategies particularly in the area where they have may uh, may have a significant family history of premature coronary artery disease. And when we say significant family history of premature coronary artery disease, we mean first-degree relatives, that's brothers, sisters, or uh, parents, yeah. uh, where the male has an event 55 years of age or less, or the woman has an event at 60 years of age or less, and they're not necessarily heavy smokers or 200 kilos overweight or, you know, severely diabetic or, or these other things that may bring that risk earlier forward. So 30 to 40-year-olds, great, great opportunity to be really focused on looking to the future and making sure they're avoiding any issues down the line. One of the things that I've become extremely focused on is blood pressure and my strong recommendation for people in that 30 40 year age group is please get your blood pressure checked if there's ever a question about it if it seems yeah. a bit high and the gp says oh it's a little bit high but it's not too bad mm. don't accept that do okay. not accept that go and get a 24-hour blood pressure monitor mm. get a very clear data set and then make a call on the best possible data set because blood pressure is a very easy thing to treat 
Yeah. But it is entirely the wear and tear on the arterial system. So you can imagine, Amir, if you've got blood pressure at 30 years of age, yeah. you'll have it for the next 60 years. 100%. It's very important. And, so the, and the thing is, like, if someone doesn't have a blood pressure, like, say, suppose he's 35 or 40, he doesn't have a blood pressure, what's the average to check it every year or every two years to maintain, like, the to keep an eye on it? So most people will see their doctor probably every six months or year, and yeah. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Mm. Uh, I think getting the opportunity to get your blood pressure checked if uh, opportunistically, if you pop into the pharmacy and they're checking blood pressures, get it done. Yeah. If you've got a family friend who's doing uh, exercise physiology or nursing or, or uh, going through med school, they'll yeah. have a blood pressure cuff. Just get it checked. Yeah. So check, check it when you can, but absolute minimum yearly, I think, would be sensible. Unless there's something like a family history, mm. in which case you might check it a bit more. And the other thing that's under our radar or has been under our radar for years is women who have the cardiovascular complications of pregnancy. So raised blood pressure of pregnancy, uh, proteinuria of pregnancy, eclampsia, preeclampsia. Yeah. These women should be monitored very closely. Mm. So, in in saying that, um, do, 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 is there any physical activities or exercise to contribute to maintain this like level of healthy healthy heart? Like, so they don't get to this point. So, I think exercise is critically important, mm. but we can come back to the car analogy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and exercise is a bit like driving your car sensibly. Yes. There's no issue with driving your car sensibly. It's the best thing for the car. But unless you look under the bonnet, unless you do some testing, check yeah. the oil level actually is okay, to mm. check that compression is okay within the pistons, to check that yeah. the electrical system is okay, you, you're, you're not really dealing with the health of the car, the yeah. health of the entire vehicle or the health of that individual properly. Driving properly and exercise is very good, but it's not the whole story. Yeah, <laughs> that's always the case, isn't it? Because when the car goes to mechanic, it just comes up with all sorts of, uh, oh, you need this, you need that. Yeah, indeed. Um, with this, um, so as, as we talked about precautions, is just, you know, taking care of like before it gets to the point, you know, um, so what's the best way to monitor their heart during the, like, so, so suppose doing intensity of the exercise is really high. And um, what sort of, like um, flags would you look for the heart attack or uh, for like anything to do with the heart when they're doing this exercise routine? So 30 and 40 year olds are unlikely to run into problems. As we mm. move to individuals approaching 50 or thereabouts and people will still remember Shane Warne at 53. This yep. is a tragedy, right? As people move into that sort of later 40s, early 50s, particularly if there's a family history, particularly if there's raised cholesterol or other risk factors, Shane Warne smoked, uh, which would have contributed. Mm. Then we really can potentially run into that area where we may see sudden heart attacks somewhat out of the blue. Yeah. And we need to think about, well, how do we identify those, which is what you're asking. Now, here's the really important thing that your listeners need to get their head around, and that is when there's an acute event within an artery, what we're seeing is a rupture of a plaque, which is generally cholesterol dominant, but has an inflammatory component. Yeah. Now, that plaque can sit in the artery and not be causing 
any limitation to flow whatsoever mm. until the very moment that it ruptures and a clot forms on top of it. That means if it's not causing any limitation to flow whatsoever, it gives no clue that it's actually there. Yeah. The clue that people get when there's a problem with their heart is generally from lack of blood flow, and that lack of blood flow is related to not enough blood getting to the heart and causing a bit like cramp, a bit like you'd get cramp in the leg. That's yeah. the pain of angina. But if there's not a narrowing, you won't get that pain. And the very first presentation for up to 15% of people with coronary artery disease, their very first presentation is a heart attack. Yeah. So how do we get around that? You Well, you recognize that you may not be able to identify it by symptoms because that might be too late. Yes. So what do you do? So one of the things that we were talking about off air and we've talked about before is I've got a real passion for an advocacy around people being proactive by scanning their heart arteries, looking at the health of their arteries, which is a very different thing than their general fitness. So running, yep. and exercise and weights is all about general fitness. So the body of your car looks perfectly well because you've looked after it and driven mm. it safely, but the actual heart health, the health of the arteries is a different question. Could yep. your fuel lines be blocked because you've been using um, you know, inappropriate fuel or there's a mm. bit of rust? You don't know that until you look specifically at the fuel lines, which yeah. is what you do during your maintenance check. 100%. And cut-ex CT imaging is the way that we can answer that question, Amar. Okay. And then what are, what are the foods that contribute more into like you know, blocking your arteries, or let's say it gives gives you sort of as we just as you just said about like you know it blocks your fuel pipes or anything. Like what what are the main? I would say the main foods that are like high risk foods. So probably the easiest way to answer that is to say what the recommended recommended. Yeah foods are. And the data that we have would support what would be called a Mediterranean diet. Now, mm. um, I don't want people to be thinking, oh, Mediterranean diet, I'll have pizza like the Italians and I'll have huge <laughs> loaves of bread like the Greeks. So yeah. that's, that's not what the Mediterranean diet is. When they look at it, it would seem that some uh, sensibility around uh, green vegetables is good, yep. uh, not too much red meat, uh, that fish is uh, present in the diet. Uh, olive oil seems to be beneficial for sure. So do nuts. Yeah. Uh, processed foods we think are not particularly good. In my own practice, I recommend that people keep their carbohydrates down mm. because I think um, those carbohydrates will often drive uh, insulin responses yeah. and sugar levels. And often is the case that my patients could do with losing a couple of kilos. So reducing carbohydrate is sensible there. But it's really important for people to understand that you can exercise really well, eat really well, mm. but you still have a heart attack. Yes. So, so if I can really underline for you and your listeners, I'm very supportive of people eating properly and exercising properly. Yeah. But they must, first of all, know what their real risk of heart attack is. They must image their arteries because mm. they, they haven't imaged their arteries first then they're putting in place responses that may be inadequate and they're just not going to deal with the issues as appropriate. Yeah. 
So if someone's like, suppose, um, say exercising or running, he's got a good heart and then all of a sudden he feels something is like, suppose like arteries blocked or anything. What's the first reaction he should do? Like, what's the first thing he can do to save himself? So if he, if he is by himself. Yeah. Well, obviously you have to stop and you have to call an ambulance. If yeah. you can just pay non-exercise, yeah. you have to call an ambulance. I don't know if you've had the chance to read my first book called Have You Planned Your Heart Attack? But the introduction to that book is a story that occurred back in 2005 yeah. where I was on my way to work. I saw a commotion uh, around a fun run because mm -hmm. there was a fun run, a uh, city to casino fun run. And uh, there was an ambulance, a commotion, people running around everywhere. I thought I'd stop and see if I could help because I'm a doctor. Yeah. And uh, basically one of the runners in the event had suffered a heart attack and had dropped dead just on the side of the road. Jesus. Now, he was resuscitated. Uh, I helped. Uh, there were some other bystanders and the ambulance team. We got his heart going again. We got him in the back of the ambulance. He went to the hospital. He got a stent and survived. In fact, made front page of the paper several days later because he had such a good result. Yep. Um, when I took that paper to work, maybe just to share with my staff, I mm. didn't want to be too self-indulgent in what yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, one of my uh, secretaries pointed out I'd seen the very same man 18 months earlier, and I'd reassured him, Amar. I'd reassured him. And that's because he was fit and well and performed extremely well on a treadmill test. And what had happened was he had a rupture of a plaque that was not causing a narrowing during his running race. Uh -huh. That's what led to the sudden blockage, lack of blood flow, a, a life-threatening rhythm, sudden cardiac death, and he dropped to the ground dead. He was only able to make that because of the support of people around. Yeah. That man had no symptoms that morning. He tied up his shoelaces looking forward to running a 10-kilometer run. So the answer to your question is that's too late. Mm. It's just, it's too, what do we do to protect our car when the oil lamp comes on? Yes. <laughs> it just goes straight to mechanic. <laughs> it's too late. Yeah. What do we do when a stops uh, by the side of the road and steam bellows out from the engine? It's yeah. too late. It is. Uh, we've got, this is what, this is where I really want to change people's focus and move the needle i really want people to come and see a cardiologist someone like me <laughs> while they are still well so that we can put in place the very strategies if required yes. to make sure they don't have mm. an out of the blue realization that they've got a symptom because i told you 15 percent of people their first first recognition that they've got coronary artery disease is a heart attack it is yeah that's that's one in, I don't know, one in six, is it? Yep. Something ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And of those people who have a heart attack, one in six actually die. So this is, it's too late. Mm. Um, we've got to have these strategies in place for if people do have an event. And, you know, it's great that we've got defibrillators occurring more and more in uh, public places. This is important. It's really yeah. good that people know about CPR. All mm. these things are really good, but we do not run our cars on a tow truck mentality. Exactly. We run our cars on a let's keep them maintained. So hopefully we never need a tow truck. You will from time yeah. to time. 
unavoidable. But we've got to change the mindset for hearts to our cars. (laughs) (laughs) And is there any like uh, dietary supplements or recommendation that to support this um, heart? Like if suppose someone's diet is not really great, you know, people go look for supplements. They go for, you know, oh, I got these vitamins. I got these like multivitamins. Are they, are they really helpful or this is just sort of marketing strategy? Yeah. Look, it's, that's a really good question. And Amar, there's probably, probably 90% of the people listening to this because they're proactive about their health yeah. are taking some sort of supplement. And I bet you London to a brick, they're taking, uh, fish oil. Uh, uh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the data on fish oil is really sketchy. Um, there's no question that there's good epidemiological data. So if we look at the Inuits in uh, in the Arctic Circle, uh, they eat whale blubber and seal blubber, um, and their diet is very high in omega three oils. They have a low risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of stroke from bleeds. But there's no question that the the observed data around fish oil consumption is really good. There was a, a GISI prevention study done about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, which clearly showed that a supplementation with fish oil in secondary prevention, so people who've had a cardiac event, yeah. reduced the rate of severe or life-threatening rhythms probably 20% or more. So there's compelling data that that was helpful. But we've had an absolute... Um, deluge of studies since looking at fish oil, which don't really give us a good answer in a primary preventative setting. Um, Again, the crux of it, MR, is knowing what the health of your arteries is, number one. Yes. And making decisions after that. Because honestly, if the health of your arteries was terrible, and um, I'm a 58 year old gentleman Mm. and i look reasonably fit and well and i exercise uh, i do some weights and i do some stand-up paddle boarding and i walk regularly and you'd look at me and think oh there's someone who looks fit and well yeah but until i've imaged my arteries and know the health of my arteries then i haven't got the starting point Mm. if my arteries are completely clear then i can take supplements for any reason I like, maybe yep. a bit more energy, maybe NMN, maybe mm-hmm. Q10, maybe fish oil for a bit of arthritis, maybe vitamin D because it's winter in Tasmania. So, <laughs> so if my arteries are clear, then yep. the supplement choices are all about what am I trying to achieve outside of that. Mm. If my arteries look terrible, Amar. Then number one is I need to drill down and get my cholesterol level down. And the only way we can really do that effectively is with medication. Then number two, I've got to be jumping all over my blood pressure. And then number three is make sure my lifestyle and eating is in line with that. And then number four is what supplements may support that. Now, there's not a lot of supplements that necessarily have been shown in clinical trials to be beneficial. Um, They don't tend to lower cholesterol, but the crux is to know What's the health of your engine first, and then what do you need to do? Yeah. Mm. So, any do 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 you see any common cardiac issue with athletes like the high level athletes? That's a great question, and interestingly, what we find is that these individuals who really train for very extended periods of time uh, can develop changes in the structure of their heart. So their heart 
becomes larger. And that's both the main pumping chamber, the ventricle, but also the atrium. These individuals can drive what we would call significant vagal tone. Mm-hmm. And some of them can run into issues with uh, change in shape of their atria plus a vagal tone change. We can see these people getting atrial fibrillation, yeah, uh, which is almost counterintuitive, but these are people who have pushed themselves beyond normal physiological limits. We were never meant to exercise that one. Uh, So, yes, there can be consequences for over-exercise. The flip side, of course, is short uh, power episodes. Yeah, We would want to be careful in certain individuals who may run the risk of severe elevation of blood pressure if they had cardiac conditions um, that could be detrimentally impacted by that, particularly valve issues or dilated ascending aorta. The aorta is the big blood vessel that comes out of the heart. If that's dilated and you're lifting weights and generating pressures of up to 400 millimetres of mercury during Mm -hmm. those uh, sustained, briefly sustained efforts, that's a big load on a dilated or abnormal aorta. So uh, checking blood pressure for weightlifters, maybe getting a baseline ultrasound of the heart and ensure it's structurally normal before doing anything too much wouldn't be unreasonable at all. Mm. And what's the, I mean, how do we avoid these um, for these athletes? How do we keep it maintained so they don't get to that point that it's so suppose like they've been a really high level athlete and then all of a sudden when they stop playing or they stop doing all these exercises they were doing before. So if that increases their, you know, the heart health is gone down. How do we maintain that? Is it just uh, normal exercising or? Just as you said before, just keep an eye on the blood pressure. So that's again, that's a, and that's a really interesting question. To a large degree, these are individuals who are highly motivated, highly driven, and very focused on doing what they perceive they need to do to maintain their excellence in their field. So to get a world class athlete, a triathlon or marathon runner, whatever it might be. Uh, and say, look, you're starting to show signs of change in your heart. You need to wind back. Um, they'll probably tell us to to get stuffed, actually. They'll probably say, look, I feel, <laughs> I feel really good. I'm going to keep going. It's not until they run into a problem where I would suspect that we get uh, the opportunity for good hearing and listening in that space. So if they have generated problems, then once they've finished their career, there may be appropriate medications depending on what their problem is. If their heart is dilated and not working properly, we may have to treat them with the medications we use for cardiac failure. We'd probably certainly use blood pressure therapies, which we know can help remodel the heart, the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and the um, angiotensin receptor blockers uh, would be the sort of drugs that we would use. We may need to use uh, drugs for atrial fibrillation as well, but really a very complicated and probably a case-by-case discussion, actually, for those patients. Mm. I want to talk about your books. Like, um, I know you've written a few books, and then unfortunately I didn't get time to read them. Usually I would, I would like, it would be ideal for me to read the books and then ask you all these questions. But (laughs) but tell me about your books. Like, how did you think about writing this book? Like, what came to your mind when you started your first book, as you just mentioned, like it was, what, what was that for? Um, and, um, what was the book was? The, have, you planned, have you planned your heart attack? So yeah. 
Look, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, Amar, and it's a it's a story. I, look, I think I said to you early on, I didn't. I decided not to do law because I'm a bit dyslexic and hope, yeah. hopeless at writing things. So here <laughs> I am, a dyslexic who can't. I never passed an essay uh, exam at school, and here I am writing books. I mean, it just it was, it's so <laughs> left field. But I, I. I was an early adopter of the imaging technology for heart scans, cardiac yeah. CT imaging, and I became so aware that this was gold in terms of figuring out what risk people had. And this was in the context of having that man, uh, that 53-year-old runner, die during the fun run, and I was involved in his resuscitation, although I told him he was well. I yeah. mean, this was incredibly confronting. I adopted this technology because it came a couple of years later. It turned out I did everything right for this gentleman at the time because we didn't have imaging technology. Um, but when that imaging technology became available, because of that experience, I was so aware that it could offer something. Now, as an early adopter, I was sharing this information with my colleagues. And to be honest, they talk about the pioneers receiving the arrows, the settlers getting the pastures. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, I was a pioneer and I got a lot of criticism and flack from my colleagues who didn't want to use this technology and wanted to stick with doing treadmill tests on people because they made good money out of yeah. that and reassuring patients. And honestly, that got me extremely distressed. And I thought, why why won't they just do the right thing by these people? Mm. Out of sheer fit of peak, I decided if I could put this information in people's hands, then they could ask for that testing. And so I wrote my first book called Have You Planned Your Heart Attack? And it is about uh, cardiac CT imaging and the role it can offer in being proactive about knowing exactly what someone's risk is and putting in place a, a precision strategy to match that individual. So, look, I'll let you in on a sequel. as a financial disaster. I'd had an agreement with Amcal Pharmacies to distribute it Australia-wide. Yeah. Uh, that was a consignment. Um Agreement. I got you know twenty odd thousand books published. They all went out to MCAL pharmacies, but no one actually spoke to the pharmacist about selling the book. So twenty odd thousand books came back to me, um, and it's uh, been just it was an absolute disaster financially. But do you know what? I had so many people reach out and say thank you so much for that book. It's made a difference for me, or it's made a difference for my family, or it's made a difference for a, a loved one. Yeah. Although, <laughs> although it was not economically viable, yeah. I, I saw the value in it yes. by giving people good information. And, 100%. and then I thought, well, I've learned a fair bit now. Um, I'm going to write a book on atrial fibrillation because it affects nearly 300 to 400,000 people in Australia. Yeah. Uh, 10 to 15% of people over 80 years of age, mm -hmm. I'll write this book and, and get that out there. And I've done that. That work, that book has worked quite well. It hasn't been as much of a financial disaster. <laughs> uh, then I've written a book called Cardiac Failure Explained. Again, that affects three to 400,000 people in Australia. Oh yeah. Um, so That's a good achievement. You know, it's not about all about sometimes money. It's about helping someone in, in their age is like, you know, in the age or helping someone with their heart or like giving them better life. That's also matter in these sort of things. 
So these books, Amar, uh, if I could give them a quick plug, and if your viewers are after them, they're available through my website at drwarwickbishop.com. Just look under books if you're interested. Mm. But these books have been written with the most current guidelines as their backbone. So these books are would inform GPs, would inform nurses, would inform medical students but we've written them for patients so the language is super easy and accessible. So an individual from any background uh, could enjoy these books. I've had a 75-year-old woman tell me she loved the cardiac failure book because it just made so much sense to her. And I've Mm. had blokes who have taken the AF book and said, oh, I've not read a book for 30 years, but come back and said, that was a really good read, Doc, because, you know, we treat treat the patient like they're a real person. And intelligent, and we explain these concepts to them, which are complicated, but in a very simplistic way, so they know why the doctors are doing what they're doing. So they really help the journey. I'll put in a plug from our most recent book, which is Cardiac Rehabilitation Explained. I'm super proud of this has come up super well, and I really know that this book will uh, help a lot of people. That rehab journey after a stent or a heart attack or bypass it's a big deal. We've interviewed lots of people, including a couple of celebrities, Darren Lehman, uh, yeah. ex-Australian cricketer and coach uh, for the Australian cricket team. We've also interviewed um, Greg uh, Page, who most people would know as the original Yellow Wiggle. Both of these gentlemen were good enough to share their own experiences so that the readers get a sense they're not alone in their in Exactly. Their Very yeah. close with how they've come up. And what's your what's your approach for um for patients like educating them, communicating with them, and try and make ex- understand the process of when something goes wrong at the just the early stage, so they have to go through this process. How do you? It's what's the best way to communicate with them so they don't like get in really panic mode. You know, oh, you know, some people are like really fragile. You know, like anything happens to them, they just, just go, "Oh, I, I'm going to die." I'm going to, you know. So, what's yeah. the best way to communicate? You raise a really, really important point, and it's one that I am very cautious and careful about. I've been in the practice of medicine for about 25 years, and what I've realised is that stress and anxiety doesn't help any component of medical care ever. Yes, ever. And so my communication with patients is always from a position of authority. Mm. Um, I would like to hope it's from a position of humility, uh, but it is from a position of authority. And I'll say to people, look, you know, my experience in this space is blah, blah, blah. Those questions that you're asking, because I get a lot of questions um, that might be left field. And I'll say, look, there is no data around that at the moment. But we know where the data sits in your particular situation. The data sits here and here. And what we're going to do for you is achieve what we know has been proven to be beneficial. Mm. Once we put that in place, I'm happy to look at all the other questions you've got. And I think one of the things that you talk about is making sure we don't put the fear of God in people. Exactly, yeah. My language is always around... um, Look, let's let's do a little bit more testing to get some more detail around this particular issue. Mm. Uh, one of the tests I do, as I've alluded to, is cardiac CT imaging. Sometimes we'll see patients um, who have a cardiac CT scan, and mm. to be honest, it can look terrible. 
right? Yeah. It could look terrible. But I don't say, hey, Amar, your CT scan looks terrible. Let's do a stress test and uh, <laughs> prove that. No, because yeah. it will um, – You'll poop your pants, actually. Yeah, it will not go well. Um, so what I would say to you, Omar, is look, we've had a look at the CT scan, but but the resolution sometimes just doesn't allow us to get the best information possible. I really want to combine that with a treadmill test so we get a, a, a second way of evaluating what's going on. We'll get that done as soon as possible. And once we've got that information, I can give you a better idea about next steps. Yeah, and then, and then from there, um, how does your... Um, works from decision making. So I suppose if someone's like, as we just mentioned, you explain them this is going to happen, and then you just you think like in the future they might need a surgery, or you know it can be go that in the future there is a chance they can go for a surgery. What's the procedure, and how do you explain that to them with heart condition people? So we'll talk specifically about coronary artery disease, so yep. blocked arteries. The the conversation is really very straightforward, and to a degree, it is a matter of degree. We know we've got very good data that if we demonstrate significant plaque in people's arteries, they should be on um, a regime to lower their cholesterol, and they should be on aspirin. Full stop. That's yeah. it. And that's an absolute baseline premise. So we want to stabilize the process and, if possible, reverse the process and make them safer if there were plaque rupture. So lowering cholesterol and adding aspirin does that immediately. Then the next question is, is there a narrowing or a blockage that needs to be addressed? And that we then demonstrate through perhaps some sort of functional test where we uh, treadmill test people and see how they perform. If they perform very well, mm. then they probably don't have a major blockage in a major artery. If they perform very badly, they do. Uh, if we then demonstrate that they've done well, we keep them on conservative uh, risk management strategies. If they perform badly, then we need to evaluate whether there's one, two, three blockages, and we would do uh, invasive uh, imaging of the arteries to get the most precise pictures for that and plan whether this person is best served by perhaps a stent because they have a single uh, localised lesion or they may need bypass grafting because they've got significant uh, plaque in all three major territories and yep. bypass grafting is the best way to get blood back to the heart. So these things are sequential and logical and the journey for the patient is one of reassurance at each stage saying, look, we're going to put this in place to stabilise what's there. We're going to evaluate and go through next steps as appropriate. Mm. And with with these decisions, do you collaborate with other doctors or any other cardiologists or yeah. surgeons to make, sort of, to make sort of firm decisions that, you know, like there would be um, someone else's have a different sort of point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, we do that. We have meetings where we discuss patients. Sometimes it's incredibly obvious if a patient has a single discrete narrowing in a major artery on a straight piece of artery, then every man and his dog would recognize that this person should get a stent in that location. And that's very easy, right? Yeah. But there are situations that are more complicated. Uh, patients who are diabetic, patients who have multiple arterial disease, but may not get through surgery well, and a stenting strategy might get around it. And exactly as you said, we present these cases 
um, each of us with, you know, 20 plus years of experience in the space, we can sometimes have 100, 150 years of cardiological experience with people saying, look, I reckon this technically might be the uh, easier option, but technically this might be the harder option, but offer a, a prognosis. But, and we chew through that based on the individual patient's characteristics. So, yeah, it's a really important point that we share that information to try and find the best outcome for individuals. Yep. And I'm just going to ask you this. In your whole life experience, what has been the challenging, particularly for you, in any complex case that you've ever dealt with? Oh, wow. Um, so... So, look, to to be honest, uh, the complex cases, well, I saw a very complicated case relatively recently who was a lady who'd had bypass grafting, had had a dissection of the aorta, had a leaky mitral valve, which had been repaired previously, mm -hmm. had impaired renal function, a whole lot of stuff going wrong and uh, really was just not suitable for repeat surgery. She, that would have killed her. Yeah. Um, but the solution ended up being putting in a valve that would normally go in the aortic position. They put it in the mitral position because that was the valve that was problem. They reversed it so it worked in the right direction, and that got that lady through that situation. But to be honest, Amar, the most tricky bits medically we normally work through in a logical way because we talk about them and we share them the mm. hardest bit to manage is people's personalities and anxieties they're yeah. the they're the bits that that are the hard bit the <laughs> medicine we we know that uh, yeah. so it's dealing with the people um mm. and that really uh speaks to your last question about not winding people up and trying to keep that journey as smooth as possible for them. Yeah, so yeah. some of the hardest cases I've had have been the emotional uh, mm. cases, actually. Well, that is a lot of information, Warwick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm really glad to, you know, have you here and then talk about all this because we as a, as a personal trainers or like the gym people, we just look at the bigger picture, like this picture from the outside of the body, you know, like, like if you're lifting well, you're eating well, that, that means your body's good. But um, because I usually get my every year blood test done just to check the whole body, as we just talked about. For the last couple of years, I've been away and then I didn't get a chance to do it. So I thought like, mm, uh, maybe last, just a few months ago, I just thought like, uh, maybe just get this done, like, you know, getting old because I was sort of concerned that I haven't done it. And then I look all right. I, I, I'm fit. I'm training. I'm, you know, I don't have any pains or anything. And plus, I don't take any vitamins. So like, I don't take any fish oil. I don't take any multivitamins. So I went to the doctor. I got my blood test done. And the, the report came. And they asked to come in. Like, you know, they said, like, ooh, usually the, if the report is good, they don't ask you to come in. And they asked me to just come in for the interview. I mean, not the, for the appointment. And then doctor wants to see you. <laughs> so I was sort of, you know, 50-50, like, what's going on? Why he's calling me? So I went in there and said, like, if you ask me how old, I mean, like, um, it's like, um, what are you eating in the daytime? And 
how's your lifestyle also so my lifestyle is very healthy i eat like healthy food yes on the weekends i go here and there like eat all the junk but like 90 percent food is like really healthy and then he's like well you're the first person i've ever seen of age of 43 indian ethnic uh, background which have a like 100 percent functional fully body like there is no vitamin d uh a lack of vitamin D, like you have no iron deficiency, you have no cholesterol, nothing. And I was like, really? So you called me to just say that? <laughs> you just scared me. You could have just told me on the phone. Well, that's uh, that, that's all good information. But let me take um, a moment to make an advocacy for getting your heart scanned. Yeah, yeah, well, I was going to think, think of that. After speaking well, to you, I'm going to do yeah, that. <laughs> and look, you you know that the Indian diaspora um, are at greater risk of cardiovascular disease. Yes. They just are. Yeah. And normally I'd think about scanning at 45 or 50, uh, but why wouldn't you get a scan? Cost you 300 bucks. You can do it on the platform we talked about. So for yes. you. Yeah, particularly if you've got listeners who are personal trainers mm. or run a gym, the last thing you want is one of your clients dropping dead during a session. Yes, this is an important conversation. And if I could have a little plug, um, one of the things that we were talking about off air previously, um, yeah. I was I put together a website, an interactive platform called mm. Virtual Heart Check. This could be a perfect tool for the trainers and gym owners who are listening to speak with their clients about virtual yep. heart check is an interactive platform that allows a person to jump on, put in some characteristics, and if they're sort of intermediate risk or low risk, which you would be, but mm. risk answer, Indian yep. diet, you can purchase a scan for $300 mm. in any major centre in Australia. Now, here's the good thing, Amar, if that scan is zero, yep. no calcium in your arteries, then keep doing what you're doing. Exactly. Please. <laughs> exactly. Please keep doing what you – but if that score is, you know, 400, then yep. then that's the time to really uh, poop your pants and yep. say, what do we do? Yes. Let's – I'm well now, but what do we do to keep me well? Yeah, exactly. That's where we go, well, we try and stabilize that process. We lower cholesterol. We've got regimes to do that. We put you on some aspirin. We might do a stress test. And let's keep a close eye on you so that that is not – the thing that gets you yes something else will get you do you get it yes i'll do it <laughs> I'll, after speaking to you i like oh i need to do the heart scan too because you know i know my overall body is okay but let's do the inside scanning it includes a free copy of an ebook of uh, know your real risk of heart attack which is a cut down version of have you planned your heart attack so okay. <laughs> You can have a look at that too, but, no it, but, it, but it makes perfect sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say to audience as well, like, so if you're listening, get this done, <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing to lose. Remember, exactly, coronary artery disease kills one in four people. Mm. One in four. That those numbers are so high. Yep. that it beggars belief in my mind that we're not doing it routinely. Coronary disease kills eight times more people than bowel cancer. Yep. And you all get a bowel cancer test kit in the mail at 50 years of age. Yes. What's going on? Mm, yes, we get this done. Get it Thank done. you for your time, Warwick. I really, really appreciate it. Been a a big, big thanks to Tamia who made it happen. <laughs> <laughs> She's a rock star, right? She is a definite yeah. rock star. 100%. Thank all you, right. Warwick. 
Thank you, Omar. And to those listening, thank you for staying till the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Fit Fact King podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. Join us next time as we get the facts about getting fit.